This is an AMI podcast. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast was produced and hosted on the unceded ancestral and traditional lands of the Squamish, the Musqueam, and the Tsleil-Waututh peoples. I feel honored to live, to work, and to play on these lands. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Accessing Art with Amy. I'm your host, Amy Amanti. My pronouns are she, hers. I saw an interview with Victor Enns through the Disability Without Poverty Facebook group, and I was immediately taken by his usage of the written word to create poetry. Combining themes that spring from his lived experience of disability, including osteoarthritis, which resulted in a leg amputation, depression, and hearing loss, Victor channels all of these experiences to the creative process. An accomplished and published writer for many decades and the co-founder of the Manitoba Writers Guild. Goodness, it's just so hard to keep up with all of the work that Victor does. His website is also fantastic and full of creative poetry and powerful words. From his home on Vancouver Island, please welcome Victor Enns. I'm Victor Enns, a poet living with disabilities in Kelowna in the Okanagan Valley. I have published five books of poetry. Welcome, Victor. Really excited to have you here. We haven't really had a lot of poets on this podcast, so excited to dive into the world of poetry. But before we get there, maybe tell us a little bit about, you mentioned that you identify with disability, and what does that look like for you? It started a few years back, uh, well, a few years back is over a decade now, I guess, with my first uh, osteosurgery as a grown-up on a broken ankle in 2009. Since then, I've had eight different osteosurgeries. I've got new hips, which are fabulous, and I've had many, many foot surgeries. I'm trying desperately to hang on to my right ankle, but that's not a for sure. Essentially, the doctor said, I've got really lousy cartilage genetics. So Mm -hmm. I have arthritis in most of my joints, which includes in my spine and leads to things like this degenerative disease. This means living with pain. That's sort of my everyday. And I have medication that I work with. I have meditation that I work with to manage the pain. And so I guess I'm curious about how that intersects with you as a poet, whether you draw from this experience of living with disability, like you say, chronic pain and and being an amputee, how that reflects in your poetry. Fairly directly in my book from 2019 called Love and Surgery, which details the surgery and the loss of limb. It's called Love and Surgery, but the last section is called Complications, which uh, include the loss of a relationship and Mm. having to move into different accommodations and and that kind of thing. But uh, it's uh, a topic that's hard to describe, and I want very much to make sure that I provide a narrative, a story that isn't the same as all the other stories. We're all different, and we all respond to our disabilities differently. We're neither all victors and we're neither all victims, is what I like to joke, because uh, there are more than two stories. And so far, I mean, if disabilities show up anywhere in the media, they try to uh, actually prefer to go with the easier stereotypes Mm -hmm. of either the hero like Rick Hansen or homeless people on the street. And there's a lot of ground in between those two. 
I wonder then how your work as uh, as an author and a poet addresses some of that stuff because you know we want to come to our work as artists with the truth. Yes. Um, and sometimes the truth is really hard to hear, but you know there's a balance. So how do you approach your poetry from that perspective? That's a good question. The answer to start with is. It's important to me that I witness what my circumstances are because my circumstances, though they are individual and personal, which is what the poetry conveys, is something that happens to a large percentage of the population. Mm -hmm. My psychiatrist talked to me and said, so why do you write so many depressing poems and poems about pain? Surely that makes the pain and depression worse. I mean, you know, why not write some happy poems? Right. Was, was, was the advice, you know, if you do cognitive behavior therapy, the idea is not to dwell on your pain, but to right. change your behavior to think happy thoughts. It's uh, something I don't do very well, that is, to be told how to think. <laughs> and I haven't done that. I have instead insisted on, on witnessing and speaking out about uh, the fact that it hurts. I'm not looking at it as a gift ever. That tends to make me really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Gift is great help. And I'm sorry, that's just, you know, people that are healthy. They're the that's ones. your lens. <laughs> yeah, that's They're the lens. ones that should talk about how lucky they are. But uh, what I mean by that simply is that there is a way to express yourself and acknowledge that pain is part of life. Yes. I uh, am not a religious person. I'm a humanist. I believe that suffering is a legitimate human existence. Yeah. Uh, and uh, let's get on with it. Uh, and But, you know, in that, make it possible to say, yeah, this is what it's like. Yeah, it hurts. But okay. This is what I've done, even if it hurts. But then you see right away, what am I doing? I'm going for the hero, right? <laughs> well, you know, at the end of the day, you got a life to live, right? Yeah, 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 so exactly. at some point, we all need to make a choice about whether we, um, you know, channel our pain. I also live with chronic pain, so I totally get that. Yeah. Whether we try and channel it into something that makes us happy in some way or productive yeah. or shares a message or we advocate with. So I really appreciate that lens, Victor. Yeah, there's a, a, a book out called Opening Up by Writing It Down. Uh, Penna Baker is the author. Essentially, his argument is that if we write things down, even four or five days in a row for 20 to 30 minutes, we will feel better the next week. I mean, it's right. really simple self-help. And is that something you practice? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> I've done it. In other words, yes, yeah. I have. I have done it. And there are many people I know who journal every day and that yeah. helps them deal with it. And I think that's really, really cool. I don't have the kind of discipline that would get me to do that properly and uh, pay attention. It is something, though, that I have taught in a workshop. So go figure. Um, go figure. Those who don't do teach, right? Isn't that well, the old analogy? It's, it, it's part of that. Yes, exactly. But expressing yourself is something that can be done in almost any artistic media. And it does tend to have an effect on the creator. I was talking to another artist who was feeling really down. Why do I do this? I should just quit. You know, I'm going to go kill myself, essentially. Not quite like that severe, but going in that direction. I wrote back and said, hey, wait a minute. You've got the best job in the world. You create 
you know, you create things from nothing. Okay, you create things from your own lived experience. Yeah. But you are making something that wasn't there before. Yeah. You are therefore a creator. You are a god. For God's sake, keep making. In other I words, I love just, that. I mean, just keep making stuff. That's really cool. So that's the kind of advice I tend to offer people who get really down and people that aren't necessarily planning to publish books or or anything. The whole mm -hmm. point is that if you are making something that wasn't there before, you have created something. That creative impulse, in my mind, I call desire. And if you have that desire and if you make things, you will feel better and want to live longer. There's a fair bit of history about composers that lived or writers Wagner was a famous one, but in any case, of composers that suffered all kinds of problems, but were fine as long as they could keep composing. Keep creating, yeah. Yes, as long as you can keep, you know, tapping into that life force to create, you'll get by somehow. And and that's the important point. Yeah, I, I totally read that. Re totally resonates. And speaking of creating, you're sharing with us um, a piece of poetry today. So yes. I'd love you to just quickly introduce what this piece is, and then we'll talk about it after we hear it. The piece is called Look. It's written by myself. It's voiced by Jim Van Dusen, and it has a visual track on YouTube made by Murray Taves, an artist that I I, I work with for for graphics. The piece describes the situation of an amputation, both in current time, which was my own, and how my uncle's leg was saved in a kitchen table operation. Okay. All right. Let's have a listen to look. Look. I look and I look. My leg doesn't grow back. Yes, I tell people I'm hard on things. People, too. Or so it seems, and especially hard on myself. You must have seen that coming. I work in threes. I remember three-legged races at our school's field day. Dixie cup ice cream for winners and losers. I came in third. Red licorice isn't licorice at all. My mother explained this to me while offering black licorice, her favorite indulgence along with the dried apricots in her night table. My leg below the left knee is gone. I look and I look, and cannot remember what having the leg was like. No memory of it, no phantom pain. Lousy cartilage genetics, said the surgeon. Sorry. My shoulders are bone on bone. I say I am bone tired with elan and forgetfulness. My parents are dead. They died never needing to know I've lost a leg below the knee. My mother would take it in stride. Doctors were for very near-death experiences. For saving her brother's leg so he could continue being a farmhand with his other brothers. Surgery was rough on the oak table her dead husband made. Grandma begged, blood dripping on the kitchen linoleum. The leg stayed on, my Uncle John's leg, so he could get on a tractor and marry a good woman of Plum Hollow. The line of blood traveling through his seven children secured. Homestead, too. He smoked himself into an early grave. I carried him, with my cousins. Me concentrating on my lift. My feet on the church steps. I don't need my leg to get on a tractor. Don't need a leg for anything. I'm ready. Go ahead. 
take the other leg too. Okay. Uh, what an interesting poem, Victor. And I love the sound of Jim's voice. Brings such it's a great. Yes. depth yeah, to those words. So maybe talk to me a little bit about um, what inspired you to write this poem. I mean, it may seem rather obvious to folks, but what, what was the iteration of this for you? In large part, the kind of thing that I've been explaining, that what I need is the desire to create. I actually don't need my legs. Uh, mm. But my uncle who was a farmer, needed both legs. Not, uh, I mean, even now, you can probably still run a tractor as an amputee. But back in the day, when yeah. my uncle was there, my uh, grandmother was desperate for him to have his leg, not just so that he could walk, but so he could work on the farm. So right. that's the contrast that I wanted to put in the poem. How, in one context, it's important to be able to use your physical capabilities, whereas in others, it can be different. And right. that's that was the message. Yeah, it's so impactful. And at the end of this piece, you say something like, go ahead, take the other one. That's exactly right. The challenge, the challenge is, even if I do lose my right ankle, as I've said, I'm worried about it. It supposedly was in the same bad shape as my left ankle. It was a, a failed ankle fusion, which I'm not in a hurry to try now on my yeah. right ankle. But okay, you know, if uh, the right ankle has to go, I can still work. It's been uh, interesting. Both my psychiatrist and my surgeon were totally bowled over by how well I rehabbed. I was out of, you know, learning to use my new leg. I was, I had to be an inpatient because I lived out of town four weeks and I managed to drive home on one leg in between for a couple of days <laughs> and I was out of there and I had no trouble, you know, learning to walk again. But they sort of looked at my body and saw the problems I had, which included being obese or at least really overweight, depending right. on what kind of language you like to use. And they just didn't think I was going to manage. You know, if you look at the actuarial tables about how long people live after amputations, you know, I did that and freaked out and said, holy cow. And I went back to both the psych and the surgeon and said, oh, no, 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 not you, not you. <laughs> <laughs> you beat the statistics, Victor. Yes, yes, that's what they are saying. And again, the argument I make is it's possible because of desire and my desire to create, which uh, the desire also has led into uh, meeting uh, Michelle Hewitt online in January. And she, I think, has been on your program. She has MS. And we now live together in, in Kelowna, which is pretty exciting. So do you find now, because I understand you're a newlywed, um, yes. which congratulations, do you now bring in into your writing a bit of the love story to sort of counter some of the the stuff about the pain and the lived experience that yeah way. yeah there is uh there are several love poems that that exist i i'm going more slowly both because of time and the other projects i'm working on one of the projects that i'm working on is called Listen Here, which actually received some Canada Council funding, and that uh, capitalizes on spending a year or two actually listening very consciously to things around me and the 
string quartets of Murray Schaefer. It seems a mm-hmm. little esoteric, but it's based on my hearing loss. So right. that comes in there. So I have to do that. In other words, for me, writing is beautiful. It is creative, but it is also a job. And because of my disabilities, I have to stick to a routine like crazy. Otherwise, I don't get all of the work done that I intend. Well, let's talk about that routine then, because I, that totally resonates with me too. Some folks refer to it as crip time, um, yes. you know, that we do things on a little bit of a different time schedule just to accommodate, you know, our life experience with disability. But how do you build in a routine to make sure that you're keeping yourself on task, Victor? Well, that's it's not easy and it hasn't been at first because obviously I needed to resettle myself. But yes. I have been fortunate in having a writing studio created that was mostly ready when I got here, including pictures of my family, which was nice back in the places that they live. But having a space, okay, is one really important thing. And we had to do a bit of a renovation so we could move the laundry upstairs so we could do that ourselves. And that then didn't take any time away from either of us, whether Uh she was doing her work or I was doing my work. We also, because of uh, Michelle's disability and mine, for that matter, which haven't been assessed yet in this context, have the ability to bring cares into the house to help us with uh, the basics of house cleaning and meal preparation and the the kind of chores like cleaning windows and such. Without that, There is no time. This is what I discovered living on my own. I could either look after myself and have everything look, you know, like a normal place, or I could let everything go completely to hell. And focus on the art. (laughs) And focus on the art. And one of the beautiful things in our relationship is that the disabilities that we have are complementary enough that we can rest sometimes very much at the same time. And often, for example, we do the uh, relaxation, the John Kabat-Zinn body scan, the uh, meaningful, well, what is it? Meditation-based stress reduction. So we we do that often together. She takes some time to rest in the afternoon while I work. I then <laughs> take take my place in the bed and she gets up at four o'clock. So the spaces I try to keep are between 10 and 12. And at 12 o'clock, we do the meditation and the medications. I've actually taken the medications early so I can do this interview properly today because there's always, always things that you have always to something. adapt to. There yeah. is always something. I have but, to tell you, though, Victor, I mean, what resonates with me, what I'm going to use and take from what you just said is this idea that I don't need to vacuum the house. I don't need to, like, I got art to do. I got work to do. (laughs) It's the, it's the excuse I needed to leave a dish in the sink and to let the laundry pile up just a little bit is because I'm focused on my artwork and there's not enough time in the day to do everything. Exactly. Exactly. It's easier with two people and some people that help us out. So we're, pretty excited about having established the routine that we have and getting along with each other. And uh, the other thing is that she can support the work that I do in many ways. She's become a first reader, of course, but uh, I've, I've read her comp for her disability PhD. So there are things that we can do for each other that go beyond maintenance, let's say. 
Yeah, absolutely. Just before we transition into our game, Victor, I want to ask you about how you got started in writing. Like, are you a classically, I don't even know that word, a classically trained creative writer? Or like, how does somebody get started in that? I first knew I had a bit of a talent when I was in grade eight because I managed to get a story about a car race published in something called We Wisdom. So it was a kid's magazine. And in a small town, there weren't people who read like I did, and there weren't people that wrote like I did. And because of that, I started to work harder in those areas because it was something I was good at. So that's how it started. To try to make a living, then I thought, okay, I'll be a journalist. And I worked at the student newspaper. I worked at the Winnipeg Tribune when it existed. And I saw all it was was documentation and formula writing. Uh, While at university, I took creative writing courses. And that's what truly inspired me, particularly the courses in creative writing led by Myron Turner and specifically Robert Croach in an advanced writing class. So, yeah, like that. And then having books published in the traditional manner. It was a challenge, of course. The family came first between 1985 and 2005. I didn't publish any books. I was raising a family. And it was important because I'm a poet to have another, you know, day job to help pay for raising a family and living in a house uh, in Regina. All of that was possible. Yeah. Oh. Victor, I'm hearing a noise, and that tells me that it's time to play the mixed bag. So, um, as much as I've loved the conversation, are you ready to play the game? Oh, you bet. Okay. This is going to be sort of right up your alley, I think, but I'm going to ask you your first question, which is, Victor, what is your favorite word? Love. Oh, I love that. Desire. Why? Yes. (laughs) Desire is the second favorite word. Okay, awesome. I figured that somebody who was a creative writer and poet would have a favorite word. Second question is, what profession, other than the one that you have right now, would you like to attempt? I'd like to be a composer and a visual artist. Like a composer of classical music? Yes, or what that's kind of right. Music? Yes. Yes, I was involved in the beginnings of the new music festival. I was also a trumpet player, so uh, just any of the arts. Uh, I just wasn't good enough to be a trumpet player, so I didn't do that. But music and books are at the heart of my life. Yeah, sounds like you're a bit of a jack of all trades. I love that in artists. Well, that's why I ended up doing the uh, abject alphabet as a multimedia presentation on my website. Yes, I that is fantastic, too. And we'll we'll make sure our listeners know how to find that in just a moment. But I got one more question for you. Sure. And this one may be complicated, but I'm going to ask you, what is your favorite book? The one I'm reading now. And that is? <laughs> it's always the one I'm reading now. Louise Gluck won the Nobel Prize, and I didn't know much about her work. She is a poet that's been neglected, I would say, but winning the Nobel Prize has sort of fixed all of that. So I've been looking at her work to help with the inspiration and so on. You, As uh, writers and poets particularly, you read a lot of work. I mean, if you want to write, poetry, you should read poetry. There are a lot of beginners that don't understand how important it is to actually be aware of what's happening in the field they're in. Whether it's making movies or making poetry, you still need to know what other people are doing. It's the only way to stay up and to know a bit better 
the kind of work to submit. The most recent Canadian novel I'm reading is by a friend of mine, David Bergen, called Out of Mind. Uh, and I'm halfway through. That's on my Kindle. And I'm uh, really excited about that. And in fact, you know, if you're going for the last book I'm reading that looks like something... But people might know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it would it would be out of mind by David Bergen. I, I, you know, a recommendation is always a good thing in this platform because I think people hear it and they go, "Ooh, I'm going to check that book out." So, yes. thank you for sharing that. I appreciate that, Victor. No problem. It's been so lovely chatting with you a bit about poetry and who you are and and how you became a poet. Tell us how we can find you on the web because I know you have some great stuff in terms of recorded poetry, which is nice and accessible for folks. So where do we find you? We're, we're at, <laughs> I, I sometimes think I contain multitudes. I think it was Walt, <laughs> Whit, Walt Whitman that, that said that. But in any case, it's www.victorans9, so that's V-I-C-T-O-R-E-N-N-S and the numeral nine, all in lowercase. And before we say goodbye, here's the quote of the day by Robert Graves. To be a poet is a condition, not a profession. Thanks for listening to Accessing Art with Amy. This podcast was produced by me, Amy Amanti. Technical production by Jacob Shumansky and Sam Robinson. The manager of AMI-audio is Andy Frank. If you'd like to reach out to the show with any comments, you can email us at feedback at ami.ca or by phone at 1-866-509-4545. Thanks again to my guest today, Victor Enns. Keep exploring. See you next time. Hi, I'm Jenny Bovard. Join me monthly for Low Vision Moments, where I speak with awesome guests about some of the amusing things that happen when you're blind or partially sighted. Watch on YouTube or download Low Vision Moments from your favorite podcast distributor.